Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, are we ready? I suppose. All right, here we go. In three, two, I suppose. <laughs> what is that? Let's try it. Are we ready? Yes, sir. There we go. Yes, sir. Dennis, sir. In three, two, one. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Your Ben Jarofsky show for what? Ben, can you answer that? Oh, yeah. Hold on one second. Hello? Yeah. Hello? How many times have I called you not to call me when I'm at work? I'm very busy. No kidding. Yeah, that was uh, President Biden. All right. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, July 7th, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. Okay, Ben, for real. Hello? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yes, will do. That's Chicago Public Library. My book's overdue. Oh, yeah. Just one book? That's pretty good. Well, yeah. That's, <laughs> did I ever tell you about the time I didn't go to the library for over a year because I had an overdue book and I was embarrassed? ChicagoReader.com <laughs> for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Okay, Hello. Ben, for real, dude. Who's calling this time? Hello. Oh, hi. Okay, take a letter, Maria. Address it to my wife. Say I won't be coming home. Got to start a new life. ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Wait. Ben, <laughs> I was getting ready to start the show. The phone's ringing again. Oh, my God. I just got a text from our guest. He goes, where's my email? Oh, yeah. Is that him? <laughs> it could be him. <laughs> It's Thursday, July 7th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, apparently he can't wait to be on. <laughs> Our dear friend, Miles Camp Lassen. And now your host, call him on the phone. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Kenny G's Tax Bill Thursday. And here's why. Absolutely fantastic. Great story in today's ProPublica. I don't even know if you call it today's ProPublica. It's an online publication. The story, I believe, was dropped today. So, therefore, it's today. Uh, I call it today's ProPublica. You know what I'm saying, D? It's not like it was delivered in the mail. Anyway, neither here nor there. But my dear friend and old partner in crime, Mick Dumkey, uh, teaming up with Paul Keel. Make and Paul take about great story, in my humble opinion. Uh, and the story has to do with one of Dennis's uh, favorite uh, uh, topics on the show, Kenny G, Ken Griffin, uh, the formerly the richest man in the state of Illinois. I say formerly because apparently he has moved to South Beach. Like LeBron James, he took his talents to South Beach. He moved down to Florida. Uh, <laughs> moved down to Florida. Now, now, near the end. Not quite at the end of the big debacle known as the Richard Irvin gubernatorial campaign, which largely exists because Kenny G decided to lift from obscurity 
the mayor of Aurora, a centrist Democrat, essentially, and try to transform him into a right wing MAGA. <laughs> Here's what we do. Just read from this script. Ignore everything you've done for the rest of your life before this. I'll finance it. The commercials will win and we'll beat Pritzker. And then you can lower my taxes even more than they already are. Didn't work. Uh, despite $50 million uh, in campaign contributions, Richard Irvin finished third. One, two, three uh, in the Republican primary, proving that MAGA was a little smarter uh, than Kenny G uh, had given him credit for. Definitely more smarter than I gave him credit for. I thought MAGA would just go along with it. I saw him on TV. I'll just vote for Richard Irvin. I never even heard of the guy before. But MAGA went for Darren Bailey, who is, uh, say what you will about the guy, uh, Maggie, he's MAGA to the core. Uh, so anyway, Kenny G uh, bailed like about two weeks, I want to say, before the election. Uh, just like, get out of town so I don't have to be held accountable for this. Uh, but uh, that is not the topic of uh, Mick Dumkey and uh, Paul Keel's uh, investigation in ProPublica. No, instead, the topic of uh, their investigation in ProPublica is how much, follow me this, ladies and gentlemen, how much in tax dollars did Kenny G save by spending all that money to fight the fair tax? Now, you remember that fight. Essentially, it was me. A dead, broke reader writer who does a podcast in his attic overlooking an alley versus the richest man in the state. I got whooped, folks. I won't lie to you. I, my clock was clean. Kenny G, I admit it. You won. Kenny G spent over $50 million. I always said $50 million. Uh, Paul Keel and Mick Dumkey did the math and came up with 53.8. All right, Mick. You didn't have to. like. Could have just gone with an even 50. Uh, anyway, he rounds it up to $54 a million, that's uh, M, a dollars. And so on one hand, you had me speaking to lefties like Miles Conflassen, my guest today, fighting the fair t uh, for the fair tax. And on the other hand, you had the richest guy in the state uh, teaming up with all his other rich pals to kick in millions and millions of dollars to fund commercials, which, just got to remind you this, voters, just got to remind you this. This is why I believe that you guys would fall for Richard Irvin. MAGA, because people in the city of Chicago fell for this commercial. Now, Miles Conflassen always chastises me. Ben, don't shame the voters. I'm trying not to, Miles. I'm trying not to shame the voters, but they're pretty. Come on. It's hard not to. You had pensioners on the northwest and the southwest side of Chicago whose monthly pension checks are what? They are earned or derived from taxes voting against having the richest people in the state pick up the bill. And they did it. They, and I used to like Kenny G. I got to give him credit. He didn't come out with a commercial and said, hi, I'm Kenny G. Uh, I am paying for this commercial because I don't want to pay more in taxes. Oh, no. He dragged some lady named Phyllis uh, from I don't know where she was. who said Springfield politicians, they promise they won't tax retirement income if their constitutional amendment passes. Yes, thank you, D, right on time. He had it. Well, shout out to the world's greatest producer, Dr. D, having that commercial. And so uh, even though the, the fair tax referendum would have no impact whatsoever on taxi retirement accounts, people all over the state of Illinois, especially in the northwest and southwest sides of Chicago, where there's a lot of retired cops, firefighters, teachers, et cetera, and so forth, voted against their interest and for Kenny G's interest. So you have to understand why Kenny G thought, ah, oh, I kicked in $54 million to get these dummies to vote against their self-interest. Ah, oh, $50 million here will get my puppet. 
Richard Irvin elected governor. Well, it didn't work in that case, but it did work in the fair tax case. So uh, Mick Dumkey and Paul Keel did the deep dive. And I don't know Paul Keel, never met him, but I know Mick for many years. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't think he'd be embarrassed uh, to hear me say this. Mick Dumkey loves taking the deep dive. What a geek. He <laughs> He's always got to wait, Ben, one more calculation before we write the story. So he figured out that uh, among the many things he uh, figured out that the 54 million that uh, Kenny G kicked in for the fair tax uh, campaign cost him. What is it? An estimated $18 for all the votes, $18 per vote. That's not bad. Like in comparison, Rachel Hinton was on the show last week uh, talking about the, uh, the gubernatorial primary. Richard Irvin spent $418 per vote in Richard Irvin's campaign. Think about that. Kenny G, excuse me. So Kenny G spent $418 per vote in Richard Irvin's campaign, and he spent $18 per vote uh, in the Fair Tax Initiative. And why did he spend so much more per vote uh, in Richard Irvin that he did in Fair Tax? Because you, the voters, were fooled by his commercials. More of you voted for that fair against the Fair Tax, and as a result, he spent less. Now, his argument, uh, Kenny G's, was that it would hurt the economy of the state of Illinois uh, to tax uh, people. They need that money to invest, you know, to keep the economy growing. Trickle down. Remember that? Trickle down. Uh, so uh, I argued that it was really an investment uh, on protecting his pocketbook. And that's where uh, Mick Dumkey and... Uh, Paul Keel did the deep dive and really good job, fellas. They figured out somehow or other, they got all the numbers together and they figured out how much uh, Kenny G would spend, uh, save, excuse me, uh, if you kept the tax rate at 5% as opposed to raising it to 8%. Uh, uh, so without uh, overwhelming you with the, uh, the numbers, the reality is that estimated annual tax savings of $51 million. So he spent 54 to defeat the fair tax. He saved 51 a year over 10 years. That's 500 million. Hello. That's a better deal than the, <laughs> than the investors got from the city when they got the parking meters. Another story that McDuffie knows a lot about. Uh, and by the way, uh, Kenny G's sidekick in, in the uh, initiative to defeat the fair tax, which is a bunch of other rich guys. They also save money. And thanks to Mick and Paul Keel, we know that, for instance, Sam Zell spent $1.1 million uh, against the ballot measure. Estimated annual tax savings, $1.6 million. So he's, <laughs> he saved more money than he spent, ladies and gentlemen. You, the suckers, voted against your best interest, and he saved a lot of money. Paul Ryan, insurance magnate, founder of Aang Corporation, spent $1 million against the ballot measure, uh, and his estimated tax savings are $2.1 million, and goes on and so forth uh, down the line uh, to where they get to Miles Conflassen and Ben Jarofsky, two dead broke writers. Uh, we didn't save any money uh, because we're so broke. We're, our tax rate would remain the same. Uh, so anyway, uh, shrewd investment from Kenny G uh, to fund those commercials, spend whatever money it took. Uh, it ended up saving him and his cronies uh, a lot of tax dollars. Bad decision by the voters of the Northwest and the Southwest side, because really, we're still searching for ways to fund our obligation, including 
pensions, which I support, unlike Kenny G, I support for firefighters, teachers, cops, et cetera, and so forth. We're still finding, struggling to find a way. In fact, right now, we had to talk about this yesterday. Lori Lightfoot is arguing, this is where we're at, that we need to uh, can keep the, uh, the threshold for ticketing people for speeding at, uh, going at six miles per hour over the speed limit because all those tickets we write out bring about $80 million in. So we got to ticket people to pay for government because we were what incapable of resisting the ads that Sam Zell and Kenny G paid for to convince us that it was somehow or other in our best interest to increase our tax liability and decrease theirs. Folks got to wake up sometimes. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, I urge everybody to check out the article by Mick Dumkey and Paul Keel. You can find it on the internet at ProPublica. Without further ado, the campaign, of course, is not done. (laughs) Flannery, Richard Irvin, always cracks me up. We are out of runway. Yes, we're out of runway. I forget what that was about. Lori Lightfoot said we were out of runway. That's what she has to raise. I'm going to make a quick prediction. Uh, Ken Griffin, uh, what do you think his next uh, investment will be in, by the way? Uh, Ron DeSantis presidential campaign. Oh, my God. That's what I was going to say, too, for sure. Yeah. Ron DeSantis oh, yeah. is about to get a lot of money here soon. Oh, yeah. I just wrote about that for the reader. I, uh, I was talking about writing about Bruce Rauner uh, and uh, the former governor, whose campaign was largely funded, to heavily funded, I should say, by Kent Griffin. They're both in the state of Florida. They're both sucking up to Ron DeSantis. Uh, I, I guess in the back of their mind, they think somehow or other he's a less obviously insane version of Donald Trump. Uh, so that should get the swing voter. Well, they're always trying to calculate what they have to do to get swing voters to go their way. You know, they, they know they got 40 percent of the, the electric baked in. But what do we do to get those swing voters? They're always trying to figure a way out. That's what the Richard Irving campaign was all about. Um, and I'm sure uh, he thinks he's got the winning ticket with Ron DeSantis. And that's part of the reason he moved to Florida. All right. Uh, a gentleman from uh, Chicago who is not moving to Florida. Uh, he's going to stick it out. Miles Kampflassen, uh, in these times, editor, writer, and dear friend of the Ben Jarofsky Show. Welcome back, Miles. Thank you, Rick. Good to be here, Ben. Uh, before I take the deep dive on uh, all the news of the day, uh, any thoughts? I don't know if you heard my uh, opening riff or if you read McDumkey, uh, Paul Keel's great article in ProPublica, but the essence is that Kenny G, the richest man in the state of Illinois, or formerly the richest man in the state of Illinois, uh, spent $54 million on the Fair Tax Initiative uh, in order to get voters, to convince voters to defeat it, and will end up saving, uh, according to ProPublica, an estimated $51 million a year in the income taxes to Illinois. I would have, I mean, if he hadn't left. Uh, I would say that's a very sound investment uh, for his own self-interest. Your thoughts? He will make back basically his entire investment within the first year. Um, I mean, avoiding a 3% uh, percentage point increase in income taxes, which is what uh, he and his billionaire cohort were facing uh, with uh, the prospect of a fair tax passing. Um, that's a massive success on his part. And, you know, you rightly pointed out, it wasn't just um, Ken Griffin and uh, Citadel that were fighting this. It was a whole constellation of right-wing and money forces that came together and were successful. And I'll just, you know, say to your point about, you know, we should, we, we should blame the voters for this. I got to say, yeah, you, 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 every, every entire, you know, three-month span before 
um, the referendum, all you saw was these heavily funded ads saying that this is going to, you know, drive up your taxes. This is going to hurt the middle class, despite the fact that, as we know, incomes under a hundred thousand dollars were actually set to see a tax cut under um, the fair tax plan, the way it was constructed. There was so much misinformation because it was funded through that $54 million from uh, Ken Griffin, along with uh, Sam Sell, as you pointed out, and chambers of commerce, you know, across the state really threw down um, to make sure that uh, we, the state would avoid this. Illinois is only one of, one of only nine states in the country, you know, that has a flat tax. And uh, it's regressive by design. Um, it's meant to uh, hurt and punish really poor and working class people uh, disproportionately, almost, you know, basically fully because they're the only ones that really bear the costs of this. And especially at a time of, you know, rising inflation and higher costs for consumer goods, everything from gas to groceries, you know, the, the cost just gets shifted onto um, regular taxpayers. And you're right that ultimately, you know, voters did decide to vote against their interests, but it was uh, due in part to a massively funded opposition campaign to the fair tax and really, I'd say, feeble um, leadership on the part of Democrats, both um, in Chicago. You know, you didn't really hear very much from Mayor Lightfoot about the fair tax um, in the midst of that fight. Um, and even, you know, throughout the, the state legislature, especially downstate, which is where, uh, you know, this election or that referendum was really lost, you know, because, it was, you know, there was tiny pockets of pro-fair tax, but pretty much the entire uh, west and south of the state was uh, was opposed. And that's because they were blanketed with these ads, these misleading ads. You know, you talk about disinformation. That was, you know, yeah. fake news was telling people their taxes were going to go up when they were actually going to benefit. And, you know, I wrote an article about this um, for Jack Bent back um, in October of 2020 about, um, or fall of 2020 about, you know, how Abraham Lincoln was the one who uh, first proposed and then enacted a progressive income tax in the country in the midst of the Civil War. You know, Illinois' own Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, he uh, believed that it was incumbent upon uh, our political leaders to extract uh, concessions from the rich in order to build a more prosperous society. And in fact, that um, law, the Revenue Act of 1861, was what helped to fund the Civil War that ultimately was uh, you know, what, what, what funded the overcoming of the original sin of slavery through um, through the Union forces, you know, being better prepared to take on uh, the Confederacy and stomp it out. And so, you know, there's a long history of progressive taxation in the United States and uh, it leading to not just progressive goals, but ultimately, you know, helping advance the cause of um, uh, working people fighting for dignity in their lives. And I think that that's, you know, that's where, uh, this it's it's really a sad example of how money and politics uh, corrupts and shapes uh, outcomes because in a fair playing field I don't think there's any chance that you know the fair tax would have had uh, lost the way that it did but sadly you know as you pointed out as Nick uh, uh, and his colleagues at ProPublica showed you can't, you know, combat that level of, of money, especially because there was also plenty of dark money going into this yeah. too, you know, untraceable funds. We only know about some of the, the larger uh, 
contributions. There's tons of uh, dark money that went into this as well. And we should say that J.P. Pritzker, you know, put a lot of his own money into it. But, you know, one man's personal fortune can't beat this constellation of uh, of right-wing money that is clearly invested in protecting a status quo wherein, you know, billionaires are able to profit off of the misery of workers. And so, you know, I think that that's just puts in more clear view um, just how sad of a defeat that was. But, you know, it's not the last time we could have another referendum. You know, there could be better planned out. We could, you know, build on some of the successes um, that we saw in, uh, in in the last one. I mean, plebiscites are, are difficult to win because you got to convince people to vote for something. You know, it's not one versus another. It's not like two candidates. It's just a referendum on one thing. So it's always kind of a rougher road to hoe. But, um, but you know, I'm not. Uh, and the fact that Kenny G is now shipped out of town, <laughs> you know, might mean he'll have less invested in a future uh, referendum. So I don't know. Hope springs eternal. Yeah, hope springs eternal, and uh, I, I don't want to re-litigate uh, the fair tax. I'm going to avoid going down the many paths uh, that uh, your riff uh, left open for me, and just move to this general topic, uh, the, which you began with: the feebleness of opposition from Democratic leaders. And I'm critical of them at this moment, Miles. We'll move into uh, discussion of uh, current times with Joe Biden. I'm critical of them because they are supposed to be our representatives. I don't anticipate assistance uh, in these endeavors coming from the right. Uh, So I look to uh, the left to champion more progressive forms of financing government. Uh, And you're absolutely correct. Lori Lightfoot lay down and ignored this fight. She didn't want to get involved in it for whatever political reasons. She didn't want to get involved in it. Uh, She's happy to be viewed with contempt by MAGA uh, on issues like crime. And she's sort of become the symbol to MAGA, which is so bizarre, of leftist Democrats, which is not a leftist at all. But she uh, will not lead the charge on progressive issues. Uh, that uh, a Democrat, I look to Democrats to lead the charge on. So yes, feeble leadership. Uh, they were afraid to take a strong stand, uh, and uh, they didn't match. They didn't stick their neck out for the fair tax. And now, of course, they're championing things like fining motorists uh, to fund government. Uh, and that brings me to the up-to-date uh, story that's just, it's kind of just won't go away. And that is uh, that uh, Joe Biden may be challenged in the 2024 uh, Democratic primary. It's kind of bizarre thinking about the Democrat, a rift in the Democratic Party, in my humble opinion, Miles, because so much is at stake uh, with the, the uh, next the November elections, trying to thwart what I consider a fascist overthrow of the government. Uh, but the, the chatter won't go away, uh, Miles. I just read an article in the New York Times today, by chance. I didn't send it to you, but it, it talked about how many Democrats are upset with Joe Biden's tepid response uh, to things like uh, the, the eradication of Roe and the reduction of the loss of proportion rights in this country, uh, to his inability to strongly stand up for sensible gun laws uh, in the wake of the Highland Park uh, massacre. And um, it goes on and on. Uh, it, so your thoughts in general about uh, a challenge to Joe Biden in 2024 from the left. How realistic do you think it is? And uh, would you support something like that? Go ahead. 
a recent mammoth poll showed that uh, 88% of Americans think that the country is on the wrong track. That's, um, you know, as about as close to uniform as you can get. And only 10% thought it was going on the right track. Um, Joe Biden's approval ratings are, you know, just completely plummeting, uh, showing no signs of a rebound. I don't think that that is a recipe for electoral success. Now, um, polling also shows, you know, that when it comes to head-to-head matchups, Democrats aren't doing quite as bad as you might imagine, both, you know, in the midterms and um, uh, in su- supposedly in 2024, based on those type of figures. I mean, there's no better indicator of voter behavior than how much faith they have of whether things are getting better, you know, whether they think that they're on a a positive path. And when you see the type of, you know, economic uncertainty that's going on that we can't deny has to do with, um, you know, decision-making by the party in power, which is the Democrats, uh, you've got to, you know, the rubber has to meet the road somewhere. And, at this point, you know, Biden has been in office for a while. He's overseen, you know, a number of major crises. And just taking this row example, you know, the uh, some interesting reporting came out that showed, and some of your listeners may be familiar with this, that on the same day that uh, the row decision came down, uh, Biden's uh, people were working to nominate an anti-abortion Republican to a federal judgeship in Kentucky. Um, this comes after the you know, Biden White House, along with Nancy Pelosi and other Democratic leadership, uh, pulled out all the stops to support Henry Claylar, an uh, anti-abortion Democrat incumbent uh, representative in Texas who was running against a progressive challenger, Jessica Cisneros. Um, and he beat her by you know just votes in the hundreds, a tiny, tiny um margin. And that, I think we can say, had a lot to do with the efforts of national Democrats, including Biden, working to uh, to save him. Now, why would a party that is pledged to support women's reproductive freedom uh, put money and you know reputation on the line to support an anti-abortion legislator? Why would Joe Biden be nominating an anti-abortion judge on the same day that the Supreme Court revokes the uh, women's right to choose uh, decisions that affect their own body. These are, you know, critical questions that I think that um, not only are left critics of the administration, like myself, uh, maybe even you (laughs) asking, but um, that the Democratic base, I think, is increasingly coming to terms with because this administration was caught completely flat-footed when it came to the reversal of Roe. When we saw there was a draft opinion put out yeah. seven weeks before they decided, um, that's you know shocking. That's it, it's like political malpractice to not have any. They didn't even have a statement ready, and then they called you know they called up the day at one thirty p.m. and they called up the press conference, the White House press conference on the day that Roe was repealed. What kind of leadership is that? You know, and then you have people. Um, and I, because I don't want to just focus on the Biden administration, I think it's the Democratic leadership um, from the top down that has really failed to provide a full-throated uh, response to uh, to the end of abortion rights. And um, you know, there's people like uh, Democratic 
uh, Kentucky governor. The reason we know that uh, Biden was planning to do that on the day that Roe came down is because Andy Bashir, the Democratic governor of Kentucky, released his office, like released emails showing that it happened. Like he is clearly fed up uh, with what is going on with the White House. And he's not the only Democratic governor that's uh, that's doing that. You know, you have J.B. Pritzker here in Illinois who's speaking out uh, forcefully against, you know, who brought up the possibility of a, a primary challenge to Biden in 2024 uh, to get back to your original question. Um, there's Gavin Newsom in uh, California who's running ads in Florida, like basically trying to run against Ron DeSantis uh, already. Um, another thing, you know, Pritzker did was you probably saw, your listeners probably heard like, you know, the day of the Highland Park shooting at a, a July 4th event, President Biden was just gave like a small uh, mumbling, you know, response saying, you know, you all heard about this. We're going to fight to make it better. Very vague and not really, you know, speaking to the, the tragedy that unfolded. Um, whereas Pritzker immediately uh, got on the, got a, up at a press conference and, you know, was, projecting righteous anger over this um, uh, horror that happened and or that was as a result of, uh, you know, broken gun laws in this country demanding a fix. And where are, you know, national Democrats when it comes to this question? So, and I think when you have people like uh, Andy Bashir, J.B. Pritzker, Gavin Newsom, uh, Democratic governors speaking uh, this way about uh, incumbent administration, you're right to ask whether, you know, there will be a challenge to uh, Biden in 2024 and whether there should be. I'll just, you know, couch all this in saying I think it a lot depends on what Biden decides to do, because there's no doubt that he's going to be the favorite if he is, if he does run again. Um, And I think very few Democrats with much stature would choose to launch a primary opposition campaign I am aware, you know, this, a lot of what's going on with the Biden administration looks like the, you know, the, the Carter administration, um, the, uh, heading into 1980 when Ted Kennedy did launch, you know, a primary challenge, but I think the political factors on the ground are a little bit different now. I think that Biden would probably have to clear the way, you know, and he has talked in the past about trying to be a transitional president kind of indicating he might not uh, stay on for two terms, but all the indications are that he plans to run again. And if so, I think that's going to at least necessarily shorten the field. Now, if he doesn't, then there's going to be a wide open um, race. And I don't think people, I don't think Kamala Harris would be the presumed nominee, whereas, you know, many people would expect the vice president to be, I think under these conditions, her unpopularity being a big part of it, it would be, um, an open field. But, you know, again, this is hard to predict two years out exactly what Mm -hmm. is going to happen. I do think in head-to-head matchups in terms of just like game theory stuff, like Biden still seems like the most powerful candidate to defeat Trump. If Trump is the Republican nominee in 2024, he somehow is able to counter Trump in a way that other national Democrats, save for say Bernie Sanders, um, but other national Democrats like, you know, let's, Warren or other people would be floated. They don't do as well against Trump in those in those matchups. But you know, if it was Biden against Ron DeSantis or any of these other leading Republicans, Biden does terribly. So there's a lot of you know. It's hard to imagine exactly what the the, the matchup will be if it is, uh, you know, 
Trump against Biden. Uh, wow. God help us if that is the <laughs> you know matchup again oh in 2024. My. I do think that you know wow. <laughs> Biden is in a, a positive position, but uh, yeah, it, I think a lot depends on the political developments um, yeah. over the next two years. But I don't think anybody in the right mind could say that you know Biden's in a strong position right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, I uh, by I think we anyone I had a brief conversation yesterday about uh, Ted Kennedy versus Jimmy Carter in 1980. I, re- I remember it well, uh, and it's pretty much a recipe for disaster for an incumbent president running for re-election to be challenged uh, in a primary. Uh, uh, George Bush was challenged by Patrick Buchanan. I remember that one in 1992. And, uh, it hurt him. Uh, you head into uh, the general election uh, with a lack of unity uh, in your party. Uh, people are still grumbling. Uh, and uh, it takes a while for that uh, to, those wounds to be healed. So, yes, I, if uh, as a voter, my number one objective is to hold off what I call uh, a very uh, the threat of fascism in this country, uh, then I don't want to see a, a repeat of 1980. That's for certain. The stakes are higher than, even than they were in 1980 when Ronald Reagan uh, was uh, on the horizon uh, as the Republican challenger. I want to get back to something, though, that uh, you said it, it sparked a, a memory of a recent article uh, by David Sirota. It's been on the show a few times. Everybody knows David Sirota, Bernie Sanders, former press secretary, uh, now has put together his own little uh, mini lefty uh, media empire. Good for you, David. Uh, he wrote an essay. I don't know if you saw this, uh, Miles, where he, the, the central theme of the essay uh, was that I'm doing this up my head. Let's see. I hope that dyslexia doesn't kick in. Um, Democrats uh, are not afraid of their base. Republicans are. Yeah, I got it right. Uh, he was actually, it's so funny. I, I had read the exact same or pretty much the same statement uh, in one of many, one of the many right wing uh, <laughs> emails I get. They were bragging about it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and then Sirota, maybe he got the same email I got and he wrote that essay. Uh, but his essential point gets to like, Joe Biden thinks it's adequate. His response to Highland Park shootings and the shootings in Chicago all the time is he thought that was adequate. He, uh, his response to the evisceration of Roe and reproductive rights, he thought that was adequate. Uh, in general, let's see, I go one step further in Sirota. I'd say not only uh, do uh, mainstream Democrats not fear their lefty base, they are contemptuous of their lefty base, and openly so. Uh, they spend much of their time just denigrating us, put myself in that lefty base, uh, and then demanding that we just support them no matter what they do. Are your general thoughts on David Sirota's uh, theory about Democrats' uh, attitude toward their base? When you look back at 2010 and what happened uh, in the rise of the Tea Party and then the GOP wave in the midterm elections that year, there can be no doubt, I don't think, that the Republican Party went through um, what we might call a realignment. Um, I mean, core values stayed the same, but the party took on the mantle of this, you know, just virulent um, based initially movement that was initially based on, you know, fighting what they saw as um, taxation or, you know, unfair financial rules, but really flirted uh, heavily with racist and xenophobic uh, rhetoric and beliefs, you know, birtherism being a primary uh, example of that. But it was also, you know, obviously a well-funded movement 
from right-wing organizations, especially the most kind of the libertarian right uh, organizations who are fighting to destroy the administrative state and, you know, hate the IRS and any form of like functioning uh, government. But all this to say that, you know, that was an example of the Republican Party leadership actually bending and changing, you know, the type of candidates they recruited, the type of appeals they made to voters based on um, the energy among their base, which was uh, typified through those protests we saw in 2010. Now that same year on the left, we saw, you know, Occupy Wall Street protests that were taking a different attack on that similar question and saying, you know, the problem is that there's giant corporations that are profiting off of, you know, mortgage-backed securities and all these exotic financial instruments that help to lead to the financial crash, which is what erased, you know, savings for uh, millions of Americans and led to, uh, again, you know, financial hardship, if not misery, for, um, for millions more. And really, you know, cast the billionaire class, the 1%, as the enemy in uh, this class war that uh, is ongoing. And that movement was also, you know, captured the imagination of much of the country, certainly got lots of media coverage. But what was the response from the, you know, leadership in the Democratic Party, then the Obama White House? You had people like Robert Gibbs, the press secretary. I mean, this was early on, but uh, castigating the professional left, as he called them. You had Rahm Emanuel saying all kinds of, who was chief of staff, of course, to Obama, saying all kinds of um, dismissive things about left-wing critics. But it's not just critics. Like, this is the Democratic base, and this is the same base that is now calling out the party leadership and saying, you know, you're in charge, you control in 2022, all three legislative, uh, you know, you control the executive branch, Congress, and you still can't uh, get anything done. It seems just feckless and unable to respond to the crises and the demands of the time. And Republican, uh, you know, officials have responded to energy within the Republican base because they see that as a successful strategy to winning power. And I think they've been proven correct. Now, the Democratic establishment, if you call it leadership, I think that there's a fear that if uh, it's not a fear of the voters or the fear of the base, it's a fear of changing the status quo, you know, and that's what Joe Biden ultimately promised, right, is that nothing will fundamentally change. Well, if, you know, a right to abortion has been taken away, you know, and is now illegal in states across this country, that something has fundamentally changed. And and it's changed to the detriment of working class people. And I think it's incumbent upon the administration to respond in kind, you know, by doing, taking action that would actually uh, change that. And, and, and Democrats, you know, have proposed uh, things like opening up abortion clinics on federal land, like, you know, doing more support, um, travel between, uh, states, uh, efforts that would actually try to meet the moment, but I mean, let alone things like, you know, eliminating filibuster to codify Roe, um, taking other executive actions. And yet what do you see is, you know, pleas for fundraising from, you know, Nancy Pelosi and they're reading poems and singing God bless America. Like that is not clearly, they don't fear their, um, their base right now. And the, um, one upside I'd say of all this is I think it's been a clarifying moment 
and a lot of people that are on within, you know, the base of the party, the very people that elected uh, Joe Biden, you know, often left-wing organizers that were doing canvases in swing states, especially, um, you know, in states like Georgia that helped to win the Senate, um, organizations of black voters that uh, work tirelessly to make sure that there's both a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president. Those are the same people that are calling for the type of change that would meet the moment. And I think that this has been a clarifying moment for them because it's clear that this uh, current structure of the party as it stands is not responsive to the will of the voters and the people that, uh, that elect the party. So um, the, you know, hope coming out of this is that that will instill some, a change in that dynamic and that the party will become more fearful. I think that the primary um, like theater where such challenges happen is through primaries. And that's what's really happened on the right is you've seen that primary challenges have scared the hell out of these more traditional Republicans and they've become mega radicals themselves just in order to not get ousted from office. I think that's obviously a horrible development for the country, but politically I think that's very instructive in terms of how to change the dynamic within the Democratic Party is through, you know, primary challenges that actually will uh, freak out some of the, you know, square politicians that are, you know, clinging to this centrist, uh, moderate style uh, political vision that ultimately will just lead us to, uh, you know, political nightmare ultimately. And that I think is the one, uh, you know, positive we can take out of this is that there's, you know, that time, time has come, you know, this is, uh, this is when we've got to show that there's a different way of doing politics because, you know, the, the wheels of history are in motion and people, you know, can't just cling to a sense of normalcy anymore when things like, you know, reproductive freedoms are being taken away and right-wing coups are being attempted. You know, I think that it, it puts a lot more pressure on the people in power to actually respond to the demands of, um, of, of voters. And, and that's how democracy is supposed to work. All right. Uh, and uh, you, you mentioned the right wing coup and let's go to this January 6th. Uh, I'll, everybody knows my position. If you just listen to the show, uh, just one show, you just get to listen to me one day and you'll know my position on this. I take very, very seriously the threat to democracy uh, that uh, the Donald Trump post election initiative displayed. Uh, the man was clearly using every tool at his disposal to subvert the will of the voters. Uh, he was calling up a board of election officials throughout the country, in Michigan, Florida, Arizona, intimidating them, trying to get them uh, to uh, go public with uh, accusations of fraud, non-existent. Uh, there was no evidence of the fraud. And, uh, and then he was uh, trying to concoct new theories of law that his lawyers were cooking up. Uh, to justify Mike Pence uh, somehow or other uh, ushering in a group of electors to select Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Uh, he had a good chunk of the, uh, the Republicans in the House and the Senate who, to sign on to this initiative. And then finally, of course, uh, he had the insurgents themselves to attack the Capitol and overtake the Capitol. He wanted them armed. We saw that in the Cassidy Hutchinson uh, testimony. So I take very serious that they'll double down on those efforts uh, in 2024. 
I, I not encouraged by the election of uh, MAGA election deniers throughout the country, including right here in Illinois, uh, where they're, if they don't come right out and say it, uh, that they believe the election was stolen, they go, well, you know, I don't know. There's those who say it and those who do. They won't take a stand. So I take this very serious. Uh, but Miles, I sometimes feel so uh, my allies on the far left, not liberals, not MSNBC watchers. I'm talking uh, about uh, the far left. Uh, don't take it serious. And they just have such a distrust of mainstream Democrats that they kind of roll their eyes uh, at uh, these proceedings. Your thoughts on this? I think that's largely a, you know, fair critique and that there are different points of emphasis, you know, right now in terms of where um, attention should be paid and specifically uh, to how uh, much faith we should put in uh, proceedings like we're seeing through the select committee uh, looking into January 6th. Um, in my mind, that is a large driver of this uh, you know, sense of not being fully invested in uh, the hearings that you might see in some corners of the left. Um, and I take this, you know, as, you know, a, a serious issue, especially somebody who works at, you know, a publication on the left that is, you know, covering the political landscape in this country. Um, it's, if you look around the media ecosystem, there's just tons of coverage in mainstream news about uh, January 6th and, and the hearings. There's less coverage of uh, plenty of other issues, especially, you know, workers' rights struggles, uh, you know, the challenges going on involving, you know, mass incarceration and criminal justice. You know, there's a wide spectrum of possible stories to cover. So in one end, you know, the critique that is, of, you know, media outlets on the left and their um, less than intensive coverage of January 6th. I think some of that comes out of the fact that there's the media, the mainstream media is kind of doing a decent job of, of covering it. Um, but on the same hand, I also uh, think that largely has to do with a loss of faith in our institutions and the fact that we haven't seen criminal prosecutions of some of the major ringleaders of January 6th, you know, it's now been a couple years since, or well, it's been, you know, uh, uh, since January, 2021 that, uh, we've, you know, had democratic administration in power and we've been aware of a lot of the basics of, um, what went down on that day. Obviously, there's new information that is being revealed, and that's what these hearings are including, but a lot of the basics about, you know, Trump's involvement, a lot of these other figures um, has been well known for a while, and yet we haven't seen Merrick Garland or the Justice Department take significant action so far besides prosecuting of some lower level uh, people involved. And so I think there's, you know, an understandable um, loss of faith that has come out of that, that, you know, anything material is going to result out of these hearings. That said, I am, uh, you know, largely of the opinion that there's nothing more important when it comes to building, uh, you know, more equal and more um, fair society than democratic rights. And this was a clear attempt to subvert democracy and ultimately to 
Um, it's an ongoing attempt to um, have voters and certainly the Republican base lose faith in in our democracy. And that's how you you know spread illiberalism and that you start an authoritarian slide. And I think if you look at you know countries like uh, Hungary with uh, Viktor Orban and other um, places in especially you know Eastern Europe where um, there have been these uh, changes to election laws and, um, you know, a lot more secret police, for example, and attempts to kind of control the population, you can see that it's not necessarily like 1930s, um, 40s fascism in, you know, Germany or, you know, liberal democracy. There are gray areas that are definitely on um, the pathway towards a more authoritarian and even fascist form of government that could be on our horizon. And that I do think is a a very scary proposition and something that should be taken incredibly seriously by all corners, but especially on the left and especially by people who believe in, um, uh, you know, both the fighting labor movement because, you know, the labor movement, a core foundational principle of the labor movement is democracy. And one of the only reasons we've seen this resurgent labor movement happening, um, in the uh, past couple of years is because there's been a friendly national labor relations board and yeah. that is actually doing its job to, to fight for workers, which is what it's you know tasked to do. But under Trump, it certainly was not, you know, there were anti uh, union officials stacking the NLRB and now under Biden, there's a more friendly um, board that is, that is helping workers, but also, you know, the labor movement, believes in democracy at work where workers can have a say in the decisions that affect their lives. And, you know, socialists uh, have long fought for the principle that democracy should be extended from just the political realm into the economic realm so that we control, you know, financial decision-making that um, dictates uh, decisions in our lives and also into the workplace, much like the labor movement, you know, that we should have more democracy. And there's no doubt that January 16th was an anti-democratic, um, subversion of, uh, of a, you know, a state of affairs where democratic decision-making is how we choose leaders in this country. And there's no doubt that they're going to try it again. You know, yeah. I'm not saying it was necessarily like a dress rehearsal, but look at what's going on. I mean, everything Trump is already s- still working to stack, um, local election boards um, with his allies. Obviously, they are already on the Supreme Court. You know, the Supreme Court's going to rule on or hear a case on um, this very question that you brought up about, you know, electors and going through state legislatures. That could move in Trump's favor. Um, and so this is something I think that uh, people on the left need to uh, care about and pay attention to because it's going to dictate, you know, a lot depends on us having a basic liberal democracy in place and it can go away faster than I think um, a lot of people are considering. And while, you know, the day-to-day, uh, uh, you know, rev- revelations that come out of the hearings might not uh, merit the exact amount of attention that they get on liberal cable news, I would say. Um, that doesn't mean that the basic point that, uh, you know, stopping a future January 6th is an important thing to do. And the last thing I'll say on this is just that, you know, this is a view that's shared by Democratic Socialist members of Congress. Uh, and that includes, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's spoken eloquently about her uh, 
um, horrifying experience on the day of January 6th, but also been, um, you know, really um, a bold voice in terms of repercussions for the people that were involved in it and actually uh, having some type of punishment for those who aided and abetted the, the rioters on that day. And Cori Bush, the uh, representative from Missouri, who's also a DSA member, she actually authored a bill uh, that would expel members of Congress who were found to have been accomplices in uh, the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And we're certainly learning that there was plenty of collaboration going on between uh, many right-wing members of Congress and um, and the planners of January 6th. So those are areas that, you know, the left could plug into to call to, to join those demands, because I really think the main point is that people need to be held to account. And that hasn't happened yet, sadly, um, you know, long after January 6th. And it's going to be up to Merrick Garland's justice department to actually carry out those indictments and then hopefully convictions. If we want to keep, um, these same people from attempting to do it again. And I do think that the left should be part of that fight. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real critical moment to uh, look back uh, at that attack and uh, ultimately to take action and make sure that in the future, such a right-wing coup attempt uh, is not successful. All right. And I presume uh, in the coming elections, uh, the showdown elections in November to take control of Congress, take control of the Senate. Uh, Democrats will try, uh, I hope, I never know with my beloved Democrats what they're going to do, uh, but they would try to, I would assume, put uh, uh, the spotlight on uh, the MAGA-6 on the Supremes and their rulings on abortion and guns, uh, and also put the spotlight on uh, the insurrection attempt, the attempt to coup uh, by Donald Trump and how he try to pervert the Justice Department as well. i got to throw them into that equation. You try to uh, twist arms over there. Uh and the Republicans are going to be talking about something like inflation. And the last time we were in your show, we took a deep dive on inflation. Uh, and uh, uh, bad news, Miles. Absolutely nobody in power listened to the advice you offered on the show. Big surprise there, Miles. Uh, and I uh, just read two massive articles in the New York Times uh, about how cautioning uh, Democrats not to make the same mistake Jimmy Carter made. Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because Jimmy Carter brought on a recession, or Paul Volcker brought on a recession in 1988 in history, ladies and gentlemen, I realized, by doing exactly what Miles urged him not to do uh, in retrospect. Uh, and because of the recession, uh, it was just in the early stages as well, Ronald Reagan was elected. Okay, so it's like, why would you urge this? They they dug up some uh, Jimmy Carter appointees uh, from back in the day, Miles, and interviewed them. They're the, the gentleman, the main gentleman they interviewed was ninety six, I want to say, and he was like, "Don't make the mistake that Jimmy did. Be tougher. Throw more people out of work." Uh, let's just take another Miles. Every time you're on the show, I'm going to ask you to uh, address this issue. As I said. Uh, but on the show, you're the, the Ben Jarowski show's chief economist, uh, a role you have actually uh, no really uh, academic background in, but whatever. Uh, so take the, the deep dive one more. Your ideas, like better ways uh, for Joe Biden and Democrats uh, to address the issue of inflation. 
yeah, I should be clear. There's absolutely no credentials attached to that uh, <laughs> moniker. So take that for however you will. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I, be, I do believe we need to, you know, um, build a more uh, worker-oriented economy. And in that way, I guess I have a strong economic views. Um, but, you know, Paul Volcker, yeah, you're right. I, you know, my advice in retrospect would have been to Paul Volcker as well. But my real advice has been to Jerome Powell because he's the current chairman of the Federal Reserve with kind of holds the reins. Um I sadly was not uh, around in 1980 to whisper into Volcker's ear uh, what not to do, but I would have given him the same advice because we saw what happened. The country did get plunged into a nasty recession due to um, the actions of the Federal Reserve, and I would say that the cure was certainly worse than the disease in that sense. I mean, we already see there's people like Josh Bivens from the Economic Policy Institute that have already um, been raising red flags saying that um, people are, you know, upset understandably with the, the state of inflation, but a uh, recession could be far worse, especially for, uh, for the people at the lowest end of the in- income spectrum, because they're the ones that really get hurt the most. And basically what we're seeing right now is uh, Jerome Powell, who is, you know, a uh, certainly follower of both um, Paul Volcker and a lot of these, more, I don't know, I would say conservative um, uh, financial experts, um, you know, people like Larry Summers, who has said that we need to drive down wages and employment, basically, as a way to, you know, solve our economic problems. Um, Jerome Powell gave out copies of Paul Volcker's book to uh, the staff, so he's clearly um, a big fan of the guy, and he's operating uh, in accordance with what Volcker did in terms of raising interest rates in response to rising inflation. Um, not as much as Volcker did. I mean, Volcker was at like, you know, what, nearly 20% or something. And, and, uh, and Powell has just done these small increases. But any increase in interest rates is going to ultimately have the effect of tightening labor markets and reducing employment. And, you know, the job of the Fed ultimately is full employment. You know, like that's the idea is that they're supposed to get people into work. And, you know, when people have a job and are bringing home a paycheck, that is what is, you know, a positive economic state of affairs. And yet what we're seeing is austerity uh, being embraced once again. And these actions that are being taken, both uh, constraining supply, which is ultimately the result of a lot of these Federal Reserve actions, and raising these interest rates is ultimately going to mean um, worse conditions for workers. And Powell even admitted, you know, he was asked uh, specifically by Elizabeth Warren, who we should know was really a um, strong and clear voice in opposing uh, renominating Powell to this position. Um, when he was up for it uh, uh, last year, I believe. Uh, but she asked him specifically, what, um, you know, what will these actions do? Um, and is there anything the Fed can do to lower the price of gas and groceries, which are the, certainly the two biggest drivers of inflation? And he admitted nothing, you know, that this is not going to do anything in terms of actually uh, countering the rising prices, which is what inflation really is. Instead, it's going to create conditions under which people might spend less, and therefore that would you know, create some more balance. But what that means is that um, you know people are going to have less wages. And we know from 2021 
what happened? I mean, it was actually in many ways a banner year for workers, even despite a deadly pandemic and attempts on our democracy, as I mentioned. Um, that said, workers got a 4.4% raise um, overall, which is the biggest raise in decades. You know, that was the median uh, increase in, in wages for workers. Um, of course, we should say at the same time, there was a 17% uh, increase for corporate executives during that mm-hmm. same time. So we definitely saw, you know, the um, inequality gap widen at the same time workers were doing a tiny bit better. But the other thing that happened last year is there was 7% inflation. So those wages, those wage increases, while they were historic in some you know senses, they didn't come close to matching the rise in inflation. And so all those wage gains were erased and people ended up having to spend more of their money on basic consumer goods. And if we see, you know, those wages continue to go down, which is what people like Larry Summers are calling for, we're just going to see, you know, worse conditions for uh, working people. And we're already basically in a recession. If you look at, you know, the figures that have come out, you know, these uh, GDP studies that have looked at the first quarter and now the second quarter of this year, they point to uh, a drop in GDP that would indicate that the U S is already technically in a recession. Um, that doesn't really matter when it comes to, you know, the experience, lived experience of uh, people that, you know, rely on a paycheck to, survive already if you look at voters biggest concerns it's you know gas prices grocery prices the economy it's basically is inflation i think a lot of that is trumpeted up because of the you know breathless media coverage about it but if if it's harder to buy a car or buy or or fill up your tank of course that's going to be um a concern and wages need to rise in accordance with that there was some effort earlier this year, you remember to raise the um, wage last year, certainly congressional Democrats tried to raise it to $50 that failed. There's been some attempts to raise the minimum wage otherwise, but um, you know, the whole reason we have this resurgent labor movement, as I said, is that we have, that there's a labor market, which has allowed workers to jump from different jobs. And I think that's created conditions where certain workers are demanding better treatment on the job. Now, if we see employment, uh, numbers start to go down, which is what people like Barry Summers are calling for, and certainly what it, uh, raising interest rates will lead to. That's going to create a way worse condition for workers to be able to organize on the job. And so, in that way, I think that's like kind of a you know double knife yeah. effect of what uh, the Fed's actions will do. Because not only will it cause you know there to be higher costs for um, workers, but then it'll create you know, conditions under which it's more difficult to actually organize, but they can bargain with their bosses for better conditions on the job. So, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of, it's kind of, it's all around. It's, uh, uh, not a great, uh, state of affairs when it comes to the economy. And, you know, I said on the last time, uh, I was on plenty of things the Democrats could be doing chief among them. One thing Biden doesn't have to, you know, lift a finger to get the, uh, Congress to act on is just eliminating student debt. You know, that would uh, ease the financial burden for millions of borrowers across the country immediately. Um, and that would certainly be a, um, a financial boon. Um, we could also send out more stimulus checks. You know, that was uh, for, for once we had, um, you know, people being able to afford more than uh, the $400, you know, emergency costs that would come um, 
come up uh, in their lifetimes because they actually had a little nest egg, even though it was like $2,000. We could also re, uh, renew the expanded child tax credit, which actually cut childhood poverty in half. Now, since it expired, the childhood poverty rate has doubled under Democrats. Um, if we don't want to see that, we should you know, take action about it. So there's plenty of things um, that... Uh, the Democrats could be doing and Biden himself could be doing, but instead he's kind of outsourced the response to inflation to the Federal Reserve. And as you mentioned, they're kind of following the Volcker playbook, which we saw how that ended, yeah. you know, in the eighties for Democrats who were locked out of power for um, a very long time. 12 years. And led to really the um, heart. Yes, exactly. And led to, I would just say the overall right wing swing in our politics and gave birth to this modern kind of neoliberal approach to governance that has dominated both parties for, um, for, for, for many decades. Absolutely. Well, that was a great riff. And about the only thing this old baby boomer can say came out of that Reagan recession uh, that began with Carter and Volcker was that uh, people in Chicago were so disgusted. They actually turned to the ballot box uh, and I first saw it in the 1982 gubernatorial election where Adlai Stevenson almost defeated uh, Jim Thompson. And then the next year, Harold Washington was elected mayor. And it was all kind of connected to it, just a general uh, revolt among the voters as voters looked to the ballot box uh, to, to sort of address their issues. Uh, and <laughs> we've moved further and further away uh, from... Uh, what uh, active voting in the city of Chicago ever since 1983. So I would say that's about the only thing I could think of the good, the benefit that came out of the um, uh, Paul Volcker, Jimmy Carter decision uh, to beat up workers in order to reduce inflation. Uh, and uh, love your riff on it. Uh, and I'll close by saying it's sort of the, sort of the same thing uh, in all these issues, abortion rights, uh, gun control, uh, and uh, it also just in general, the, uh, the, the MAGA six on the Supreme Court, uh, same thing with Biden on uh, inflation, R run away from any uh, proposal supported by uh, the Miles Kampf lessons of the world and embrace those supported by, I don't know, I don't know who they're, <laughs> Rahm Emanuel, you know what I'm saying? His to say his political Rahm, descendants. Yeah. Uh, Rob, I can't blame him. He's in Japan, but he has plenty of political descendants uh, who uh, are everywhere in uh, local politics. All right, Miles, uh, before you head off, uh, just give a shout out to some stories you would like folks uh, to pay attention to that will be coming out uh, in, in these times. Yeah, I have some great stuff up uh, now and more coming uh, later today. There's a piece... Uh, Speaking to some of the inflation uh, talk I uh, was going on about earlier uh, by Max Sawicki, who is a longtime economist and writer. Um, uh, it's called Don't Trust the Federal Reserve on Inflation. It goes into some of the um, things I mentioned, as well as more of like kind of a wonky deeper dive, if you're interested in that, on the causes of inflation and some of the ways out. Um, and then a piece by David Duhalde that gets into uh, some of the some of the uh, stuff I mentioned earlier about January 6th and the historic role of um, the socialist left um, in protecting democracy, whether it 
women's suffrage or the civil rights movement and why um, the left should be called upon to engage in this moment of January 6th as well um, that uh, will be out uh, soon after this episode wraps. So people should definitely um, check those out. And, um, yeah, keep uh, listening to and supporting the Ben Jarowski show. Oh, I love that. We're going we're gonna to take that one out and promote that last line. Uh, Miles Kampflassen, a writer, editor in these times, proud graduate of Whitney Young High School, the son of Beverly on the southwest side of Chicago and dear friend of the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, thank you very much, Miles. We've run out of time, so we can't do any conversation about my beloved Chicago Bulls. We'll save that for next time. Uh, they made it. It just had a draft and free agents. And Miles and I are already preparing for the world championship uh, that will be taking place, the celebration that will be taking place about this time uh, next summer. So keep it here for details on the Bulls championship. Uh, thanks very much, Miles, for coming on the show. My pleasure. All right, that's great. Miles Conflesson. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy, Baltimore, Illinois. With a, <laughs> here he is. He put that dolphin sound because Miles is a proud graduate of Whitney Young. Who are the dolphins? Uh, <laughs> right on, right on cue. Uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy, Baltimore, Illinois. Without whom this show would be possible. Uh, and as uh, Jerome Powell and Miles Conflesson will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Doctor D, and the D stands for the marvelous. Uh, have a great day, everybody. See you tomorrow.